Hi, welcome to Revved Up for Sunday, a lectionary podcast from the clergy of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. I'm Justin Crisp. I'm Peter Walsh. And we are again without our colleague, Reverend Elizabeth. Uh, she's enjoying some summer Sabbath here. And if you're watching this in the vicinity of its recording in August 2022, we hope that you're getting some summer Sabbath too. And talking of, uh, speaking of Sabbaths, we've got a controversial Sabbath right here in our lesson today from Luke chapter 13. Let's hear the story. A reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke, the 13th chapter, beginning at the 10th verse. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, but not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Really interesting story. Great story. Great story. This is um, a story that appears only in Luke. Right. Uh, there are echoes of this story uh, in Jesus' healings and exorcisms in other, uh, in some of the other Gospels. Mm -hmm. But this one has its own particularity. So just to mm -hmm. make sure everybody's set in the place of Jesus here, uh, Jesus again is, we're on the travel log. Jesus is uh, moving, as you said, from sort of end of chapter 9 to end of chapter 19, the 10, the, the, the ten chapter journey that we are all on, primarily a teaching journey. Uh, and he is now in a synagogue. In fact, this is the last time we're going to see Jesus in a synagogue oh, as he makes his yeah. way to Jerusalem. He's about six months away from uh, uh, being in Jerusalem at this point, as far as we're going to date this uh, very roughly. And, and here we have him once again on the Sabbath. And I know you would start in the same place, so I'm going to start in that yeah. place too. But let's just uh, go back to uh, Jesus when he began his ministry uh, back in Nazareth. Yeah. And the, uh, his, as you remember, as he uh, went from his uh, 40 days in the Judean wilderness and where the devil, uh, the Satan had driven him there. And as he came out of there, he goes home. And in Nazareth, he does the same thing. He goes on the holy day and picks up that scroll of Isaiah and then sits down, of course, because teachers sit there and he reads from that scroll and he read this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And then he closes up his new annotated Oxford Bible. And uh, that, in some sense, sets what Jesus is about here, because he's about the business of, of setting this woman free. And just to uh, go a little bit in deeper into this and then let you take over here. Yeah. So where it says, um, and then there appeared a woman. The, the Greek there is way, it's behold. I mean, this would make an incredible movie scene, behold. And as the woman comes in, uh, we're told that she's 18 years bent over. And I'm not talking, you know, this is likely not a slight hunch because I didn't do enough Supermans to, to keep her back muscles, right? right? This, woman is, this woman is crippled and, and probably bent literally in half. Uh, and we're told that uh, she's crippled with a spirit mm -hmm. that has crippled her. So now we have the demonic and we have the physical coming together right. and crippling this woman. And what does he do? But he sets her free from her ailment, just like he said he was going to do at the beginning of his mission. Yeah. I, I love that you're tying these two, um, uh, these two synagogue Sabbath moments together because this is, this is, Jesus, um, this is Jesus fulfilling what he said right. he was doing yeah. uh, there at the beginning of, of, of Luke. He's, um, he's in the midst of unfurling the way in which he is a fulfillment of the prophecy he was preaching in Nazareth. Uh, he was yeah. preaching in Nazareth that he was the fulfillment of it. Here's the fulfillment. The fulfillment lasts for his whole life, his death, his resurrection, all that. We're catching him in the middle of it. He, we're in, um, uh, in media res, as it were. Um, so he's, uh, the, the liberation that he proclaims earlier in Luke is one which is um, cosmic in its significance, as in it goes all the way down, right? It is personal, it is physical, it is spiritual, it is societal, social, political, the whole thing. And Jesus' watchword is liberation. His watchword is freedom. And that's what this is. It's a story of freedom from bondage, right? Which is not necessarily the way that we would automatically, or I'll say it's not the only way that we might think of an illness right. or a sickness or, uh, or, or, or a, a physical ailment of this kind, right? Jesus interprets this as um, Interprets it that she's in bondage uh, to Satan in particular, which we, uh, we can say a word about in a moment. But this is something from which she needs to be set free. She does it, he interprets the healing as liberation, right? Which is another way in which those two synagogue moments are helpful in interpreting each other. Um, I just want to fill out a little bit because I found this really interesting in one of the commentaries I read by um, uh, Carolyn Sharp, who's a preaching professor, mm -hmm. a yeah. scholar of the Hebrew Bible at Yale Divinity School. Um, I found it really interesting the way that Professor Sharp filled out what this woman's physical ailment likely was and what it would have caused her. So if this woman had been bent over in the way that's described here for this period of 18 years, uh, Professor Sharp speculates she would have experienced, um, she would be experiencing in this moment neck and back pain, fatigue, oh. difficulty breathing, heart problems related to the inflammation of her aorta. Right, and then also uh, this is in addition to she says social psychological feelings of frustration, vulnerability, and isolation, right? This is causing her cardiac problems as well as back problems, right? This is not just painful, it could in the long run kill her, right? Not gonna kill her right now, but in the long run, it's gonna kill her. And that's actually important because the debate that they're having in the synagogue is about whether or not this counts as work. Uh, and Professor Sharp says a word about that too. Um, so the, um, if we go back all the way to the, Hebrew, to the Hebrew Bible, if we go back to Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments in the Decalogue, 
um, there's this, um, one of the commandments is to keep the Sabbath day holy. And it, com it, it does this because it, um, because it says that in creation God rested on the seventh day and so hallowed it, made it holy, and so now all of God's people are also going to rest on the seventh day and not do any work. Uh, the trouble was that in Exodus chapter 20, for instance, and it's, 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 it, the commandment occurs multiple times, but in Exodus 20, just for example, it says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, etc. So nobody to whom you, nobody to whom Israel is connected is supposed to work. It doesn't define what work is. And so that's where the rabbinic teaching came in. And by this time, Professor Sharp says, rabbinic teaching had consensus around you could make a life you can make a life-saving intervention for somebody if it was particularly urgent. That wouldn't count as work. The dispute here is about whether or not this is life-threatening enough. Right. And that's where you get Jesus saying, well, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it, to give it, lead, uh, lead it away to give it water? Why not we do this for this woman, right? So he seems to be, he, he's, he's saying, uh, uh, if it serves life, it doesn't, it would not be a violation of the Sabbath. It doesn't have to be like this person has to be dying of this thing like right then in the next 24 hours or something like that. If it serves life, if you're leading the animal to water, that then it would be acceptable to perform on the Sabbath. That's in the context of the rabbinic debate. I think that's part of what's going on. Uh, what, what do you make of the of the of the law, the life, yeah. the donkey, all of that stuff? I, I'm I'm with you on this. That this is this is not Jesus taking the law out and saying, oh, that's a ridiculous law. It's a ridiculous commandment at all. This is interpretation of the law, mm -hmm. and uh, he he does you know perfect Hebraic argumentation, right? Uh, you, you, we allow this, and then why not? this, right, this kind of parallelism, and, uh, and, and the question is loosing. Mm. You loose, you loose, you loose the, 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 um, the whatever binds your, your, your donkey or your ox so that the donkey or the ox can go get something to water, and now this woman is in bondage. So the whole question is, what's the demon doing? This woman, the, the bondage is holding her uh, in bondage, and so he's simply loosing. So now we get Jesus interpreting um, uh, the demonic work is like the rope around mm. uh, the ox's neck. I mean, this yeah, really, this really gets yeah. into some great stuff in, yeah. in, in here. Uh, and then he, he then, you know, Jesus, I mean, he goes for it when he calls her a daughter of Abraham. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we get, we get don't, who do we get son of Abraham with? Isn't that like Zacchaeus or something like that? Yeah. And he comes with the daughter of Abraham and just really loads it up. But it's just set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day. So that th we've already agreed upon this. So this is sort of like, this is where we get, you know, we talk about the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in the New Testament time. And this is the sort of stuff that they would be sorting out. Yeah. Right, and so Jesus is. I mean, Jesus, in my opinion, was not a carpenter; he was a rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, he came from carpenter stock, and I'm sure he made it a great table. Yeah. But, but, but really, what he's all about is is his incredible knowledge of the law, and then he's interpreting. So he is he 
is he's playing law. But the best part about this, no, no, not the best part. The, the incredible part about this is, is what's tucked in between where we get the leader of the synagogue is indignant. So mm. the leader of the synagogue, the way that comes out in, in the Greek is um, this is not the rabbi. This is like the chief administrator. Mm. Okay, so we have the chief administrator of the synagogue um, and he is in, it would be a he, he's indignant. And so instead of talking to Jesus, he keeps saying to the crowd. So he, mm. this is the ultimate, he uses the crowd in a triangulation and he goes on, you know, there's six days on which to work, work ought to be done. Uh, come on those days and be cured, but not on the Sabbath day. So he's concerned about the crowd and he, ca- he cares not one iota for the woman who's bent over in all this tremendous pain. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I'm sure that the, many of you who have, uh, are, are tuning into the pot have seen somebody who's bent like this. It looks terrifyingly terrible. Yeah. Terrifying. I mean, you can only see people's feet. You see people on the, craning their neck up just to see right at someone's belt level. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the, the, the conversation is also, it, you know, it makes for a great scene. Uh, you're totally right. The triangulation there with the crowd, that is, that is really good. It is like something out of, it's like something out of Shakespeare. Um, I, you know, and I, I think that it's, it's, um, it's important to note that um, this is a good word for Christians, right? So there could be a kind of supersessionist or even anti-Semitic Christian temptation, anti-Jewish Christian temptation to say that now, okay, you know, since, since Christians are free of the law, as it were, uh, we are all good and we don't have to worry about this kind of back and forth. I actually think this is a back and forth that all of our churches have all of the time. This is a word for Christians, which of our rituals which of our traditions, which of our, the, the forms which, ooh, the forms with which we live and which give us life, which of them are serving life and which of them are taking life away. And, and I'm, I'm, a, um, I'm a conservative of a particular kind in the sense that I really believe in tradition, right? It's one of the reasons why, why I, I love being an Anglican, an Episcopalian, is because we do honor tradition, right? We have forms. I mean, we have a prayer book which tells us what to say in, in a, you know, 9.5 out of 10 sort of things which a pastor or a priest could be... Uh, oh, the Holy Bible. That's the Bible. Pull out, pull out oh, the yeah, Bible. you got to pick out the other red book. Yeah, this yeah. is a very Episcopal moment, right? You, yeah. <laughs> you ask for the Book of Common Prayer and you get a Bible or a Bible and get a BCP yeah. instead. You know, we, we, we have forms right? And these forms do, a life in form can give you great life. It can give your life structure. Um, you know, I, I think of the music of Mozart, which, of which I'm particularly enamored right now. Mozart was somebody who didn't experiment, lo- I'm going to be corrected by a musicologist in the comments, but to my knowledge as an amateur, Mozart didn't experiment a great deal with form, right? He's not, he's not somebody who like blows up whole genres of stuff and does something completely new. Uh, but what he does is he makes the most exquisite music, arguably the most most exquisite music of the classical period, arguably the most exquisite music of Western, uh, you know, in, in the Western canon up until like, you know, the, the 20th century or something like that. For some people, maybe including the 20th and the 21st century. Beautiful music, but not exploding everything, right? So you can make beautiful things and not explode everything, but sometimes they have to be exploded. Sometimes you've got to, you've got to shift things. You have to change things. You have to give up tradition and discerning what to let go and what to keep, what to bind and what to lose mm-hmm. in rabbinic vocabulary is what Jesus is about here. Um, but I, I do want to—I um, want to take a moment um, to talk about the fact that um, this woman is not bound just by a law. Uh, she's not just inhibited by Sabbath regulations or something like that. She, so Jesus says, she's bound by Satan. 
You have yeah. a lot to say about the spiritual world and the spiritual life. What do you make of that? Uh, okay, so we're now entering into a territory uh, that is, um, to my mind, um, one of the most difficult uh, areas for us to speak of with great authority. Hmm. I think that uh, statements about this um, uh, reality are uh, statements that are, that are sketched uh, from experience with great humility and not statements that are made with super clarity about what is about what is we're, what we're talking about here. Uh, the back to the Book of Common Prayer and back to the Bible I pulled out. Both of them bear witness uh, to a spiritual world that has bad stuff in it. And uh, in our we've talked about this in the past in our baptismal liturgies. We uh, we speak about uh, renunciations, the renunciation of Satan and the, uh, the spiritual forces, uh, the renunciation of evil, and then the renunciation of sin. And we would hold that, uh, and certainly as we put the two red books together, the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, we have uh, that that there is a, a force in the world that whose job it is to resist God and destroy the creatures of God. Mm -hmm. and, and so what we have here is a story about the destruction of a creature of God. Nowhere in this story do we hear anything that there's been any sin uh, from, you know, sin of a previous generation visited upon her or that she has been a sin, that it is almost as though uh, she uh, a pull the wrong card was one of the unlucky people to be caught up in uh, in the fallen world, mm -hmm. which includes dark forces, which uh, which have made her almost like a beast of burden, bent over like a beast of burden. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Jesus. Now we introduce Jesus, who is a spiritual healer. Uh, uh, who approaches the physical world. We, we go to the hospital and we approach it through the, through the physical world. Jesus approaches the physical world through the spiritual, the lens of the spiritual, the, the, arts, uh, the, the arts of light. I'm thinking of Hogwarts and the dark arts. So Jesus is a master of the light arts, right? Yeah. And, uh, and he cures her orthopedic problem with the spiritual with a spiritual command. And, and so uh, we then see that Jesus has this power. I mean, exorcisms are very common for Jesus. And then we, uh, as a church, as a people of Jesus followers, let me talk about that. Jesus followers are, are um, trained and taught and some are sent out to continue the work of the Spirit, Jesus' Spirit. And, and so when we have people that come to us and speak of the dark spirits in their lives, some of which um, their crippling might not be, they are literally orthopedically bent, but you have seen these people come and they, they look like a ghost. They're, they're as pale as, they're, they're that, that, that deathly kind of green pale, that's super, super pale. That, um, and, and, and so we find that when people have this ailment, that uh, the ailment uh, is, uh, is like taking someone's energetic bucket and sticking a big hole in the bottom of it, and it drains the psychic energy, the chi, the life force, the, uh, the grace out of their lives, and they find themselves unable to function fully. And so when, as part of a healing modality, we uh, may lay hands on a person just as Jesus laying his hands on somebody, laying hands on somebody, 
And our prayer is not that this person is cured through our our energy because we don't have that sort of energy, but it is in the name of Jesus, which is clear in the Acts of the Apostles, also written by Luke the physician, uh, or compiled by Luke the physician, at least in our tradition, and, and, and handed to those. So in the name of Jesus, to call in the power of the Spirit, that the living Christ may be able to cauterize the wound or mm. to exorcise, to, to help that person to have that spirit leave their body and to cauterize the wound such that the, the in, made in the image of God life force that this person have might fill up the bucket of life and in filling up natural energetic uh, uh, energy chi, that, that, that thing, um, by the grace of God, their body might be able to heal. Mm-hmm. And, and when we, these are things that often take place over a protracted amount of time, uh, but sometimes, you know, actually kind of relatively quickly too. But in Jesus's stories, it's always instantaneous, yeah. right? The guy, and they drop the mat on the floor. Jesus says, your sins are beginning to stand up and walk out of here. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I mean, the rest of us don't have, we, we don't, I mean, that, that's, that's like the bullion cube of Jesus. <laughs> and the rest of us are put into the, the pool of humanity and that, that bullion cube doesn't, I mean, is, is, doesn't have the same intensity. So yeah. um, that, that what we see here as a paradigm and a model, uh, one of the gifts to the church in its holiness is to be able to continue to do some of this work some of the time, but not all the time. Because we just know that, right? We just know that the experience is we can do the best we can do, but we do not have the ability to manipulate the spiritual world as we desire it all the time. Yeah. We just don't, yeah. you know? That's a, that's a very, very, very good word. I'm really grateful for that. And I, I've learned a great deal from you about this. Um, and I, um, it does, I think you, you had it totally right at the very beginning. We have to be very, very, very humble whenever we wade into this territory, right? Um, I think that one additional, one additional thing that I might add is that there's, um, I would draw a contrast between this healing narrative and some of the others in the gospels. So here you have a healing, um, which is a healing of an ailment, which Jesus identifies with some kind of demonic bondage, right? The spiritual forces of wickedness which rebel against God or those which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God, to quote the, the prayer book's baptismal service. There are other healings like the healing of the man who's born blind in John um, chapter 9, where um, this is, there's a conversation that Jesus intervenes in where people are asking Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, right? Is this, is this a sin problem? Yeah. And, and Jesus says neither that it's a sin problem nor that it's the spiritual forces of wickedness which rebel against God. Rather, he says in this case, um, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Oh, I forgot that. It's yeah. an incredibly complicated sentence yeah. uh, in the Greek, right? There's a debate about this conjunction, which is translated so that uh, it basically, um, that he was born blind is not actually in the Greek, right? It's to make the conjunction make sense for English speakers. It basically goes, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Hina is the Greek, the so that God's works might be revealed in him. And this so that can be either, it can either communicate purpose or it can be a command. That is, it could either be that this happened so that God's works can be revealed, or it could be um, neither this man nor his parents sinned, full stop, lit God's works 
may God's works be revealed in him. Um, the NRSV in, uh, translates this so that, and I, I have to say I, I kind of, I follow the so that, because I think this is in a different category than the healing that we just got, that, we're, that we've been looking at in Luke. That there, there are, um, and I, I say this from uh, my experience as a pastor, I, I assume that people are the authority on their own lives. And um, I'm writing a book right now. I worked on it some this summer while I was uh, while I was away, about uh, which is uh, talking to pastors and talking to people about how God is at work in their lives. And my main, um, I mean, I want to speak to everybody, but my main intervention for pastors is that pastors ought to be a lot more humble than we normally are. I think many pastors, many seminarians, myself included, when I first became a priest, walk into a room or into a hospital room or into your office or whatever to meet with somebody, and they already have an idea about how God's at work. Either God made this happen or God didn't make this happen. Whatever. We, we come to it with our own assumptions. And what I'm suggesting is actually that we take a back seat and we listen. And we, um, we help people to discern the spirits, right, in the, in the spirit of somebody like St. Ignatius of Loyola, that we help people, we, we serve, pastors can serve as spiritual directors to help people to figure out, is this more like John 9, or is this more like Luke 13? Is this the spirit, are these the spiritual forces of wickedness which are not God, right? They are not God. God says no to this stuff. And a lot to say about that no maybe in my sermon. God says no. That's it. There's no affirmation of these spiritual forces of wickedness. God has nothing to do with them. God defeats them. But God is not like underwriting what they're doing, right? Jesus is fighting this thing. Uh, fighting this, this, this something which is nothing. Uh, anyway, more to say about that another time. Um, is this, is it, are these the spiritual forces of wickedness? Or is this something where like in some incredibly mysterious way, which we do not understand. This is intended by God so that God's works can be revealed. And um, we, we've had um, the three of us, um, Elizabeth here, um, really, really, really central to this. I'm sorry that she's not here to speak to it. We've had experiences just very recently uh, in the lives of um, multiple, multiple people this summer both of whom spoke about their about what happened to them in the category of John 9 rather than Luke 13. Uh, so so these these were two women in particular, um, one who was a bit older but still incredibly young uh, to have died in, incredibly young. The other who was very, very, very young, uh, she, she, was, um, she was only 29. Uh, they both had cancer. Um, they both had forms of cancer and they spoke about their illnesses um, in terms of um, in terms of God having intended them in some way, uh, they they spoke very powerfully about how God intended this f intended their cancer, intended their illnesses. Um, even uh, even even the second one um, intended her uh, the twenty nine year old intended her dying um, for some greater purpose which they did not know, but that they were assured that this was a part of God's plan. And I have to say, I stay very humble in front of that kind of thing. Um, I think that the, in the scriptures, there are two different categories of illness, right? You've got, you've got, you've got Luke chapter 13, and you've got John 9. And um, these, were, these were two people who put their suffering in the category of John 9 in a really, really, really um, incredible, I would say, um, mysterious, 
um, and uh, hope-filled, even though um, incredibly, incredibly sad and tragic. Um, it was a hope-filled way. Yeah, both of those people there. This is the, the, uh, the, the shocking thing about our, our vocation is that we get to witness real people doing biblical things. And it's not people, look at the way we're dressed. We, would, oh, we wear the same clothes every single day. Every day. Except I don't wear these it's on true. Saturday. Yeah, uh, not anyway. Saturday. Uh, uh, or yeah. Monday. But anyway, uh, and, and, but the real yeah. holy people aren't dressed like this. The real holy people are the people who, who have these life-threatening and, and life-ending illnesses. And they say things, they experience things that are like the right, they're like, oh, or me, I should be picking this thing up, that they're, that they're the profundity of which makes you believe in God and makes you believe that um, there is a mystery of what it means to be alive and what it means to be contending with your own existence and what it means to experience your existence in communion with an unseen force that we call God. And when they come together, there's almost nothing to do but kneel in prayer. Mm. And, and the only response is wordless. There's nothing to say. I mean, I know you're that's going to right. preach a sermon that's right. tomorrow that's going to be riveting. For one of these, one of these two ones. people. It's, it's, I can't wait. I can't wait. I hope you talk for a long time. Because you have a window. She has given you, given you holy material for you to share with us. Yeah. And, uh, and so you're, you're right on about that. You're right on about that. I, I'm yeah. almost, I'm, I've been out of seminary for 30 years. I'm coming, and, and, and next Sunday is my, my 14th year here of all bizarre things. Yeah. Uh, um, and the more I do this, the, more I, the less I have to say mm. about a lot of things. Mm. I think I'm getting smaller. Mm. I mean, I am shrinking because I'm give me shrinking time. But I mean, my, my just like I, I do experience mysteries of holiness that are just. There's almost nothing to do except that. But you know, I've, I've, I've done multiple times. Shocked into speechlessness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 I meditate every morning and I meditate. Uh, I, don't, I don't allow myself to get out of bed because when I get out of bed, all hell breaks loose. I mean, it's, life is <laughs> wild. It's wild. It's crazy. It's like the podcast from last week uh, with the Moira Rose. The, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. crazy. It's crazy. So I will meditate from 5 to 55 minutes every morning. And, and, and so I do the um, Maranatha is, my, my, as you know, my mantra. And I do oftentimes the length of my backbone. I can Maranatha, the, which is, it gets into a lot of Eastern things about the, the role of your backbone in your uh, in your spiritual life, and mm. it's why it's why they tell you to either be upright or downright. But anyway, mm. um, and and the, and to experience um, subterranean grace mm. that changes people's lives and allows us to stay deeply rooted in the midst of the storm. Mm. It's like you're in the ocean. The, and that God, the, the tumult on the surface is craziness. It's like this woman has bent over for 18 years. 18 years! You ever try to spend like two days bent over? It's terrifying. Your back is mm. killing you. 
uh, it, it's so, so, it's so painful. We would, in, in our con contemporary culture, we, she'd be in palliative care. Right, right. Right? Right. Um, totally. But here, you know, the, the holiness, the holiness of it, there's a holiness underneath it all. Yeah. It's just a holiness underneath it all. And it's just like the backbone of our world. And it just flows. But in Jesus, it's incarnate. And so he has the power to lay hands on it, say a word, bam. Right. I, I have to say, um, real people doing biblical things. That is absolutely right. And one of the gifts that I'd say of, of being in this, um, being in this vocation is that um, you see real people do biblical things all the time. And you're constantly reminded it's really real. It's actually real. This stuff, actually real. We pray it'd be a blessing to you. Please like, share, and subscribe. Help us to share this blessing with the world in great need. God bless you. See you soon. Bye-bye.